the the teaching story has had a profound effect in the transmission of understanding to the to the practitioner. The Buddhist tradition is no exception to that. When Prince Siddhartha um, had his realizations, became the Buddha, the a long tradition of storytelling had already been in in India for thousands of years, maybe even ten, possibly twenty thousand years. And they became the stories became incorporated in, in the mythology and legends of the Buddha and the and the lifetimes of the Buddha to be. And he was known as the Bodhisattva or being of awakening. That term can be applied to uh, all of us on the spiritual path. Uh, we're all beings in the process of awakening or bodhisattvas. So when we hear the stories of the, for example, the Jataka tales, the birth stories of the Buddha, we're, we're hearing our own story being lived out on very deep levels of our being. Once the Bodhisattva was born as an ox and given as a young calf to a poor farmer in exchange for a favor. This farmer <clears throat> was a very naturally loving, caring being, worked really hard, helped his neighbors, helped the village people. He loved this ox so much, cared for him like his own child. The ox, the ox grew great and strong, had the gifts in this lifetime as the Bodhisattva of extraordinary strength and profound compassion together. Whatever the farmer needed done, uplifting this stump, moving this great boulder, plowing the fields, the ox could do that without any problem. And yet, so gentle that the village children could come and play on the back and swing from the tail of the ox. So much joy did it bring the farmer that he named him Great Joy. Well, after many years, Great Joy had this thought in his mind one day as he was drinking from the water trough. I'd like to help my master somehow. Hmm, I have a good idea. So he strode up to the, uh, to the mud hut and the windowless pane, stuck his horned head through the hole and said, my master. And the farmer who was drinking tea and mending an old book his, his, uh, his jaw dropped, his tea spilled on the book, and he says, what, I have an ox who can talk? He said out loud, and, and Great Joy said, ah, there's many far more wondrous things in this universe than my talking. This is what I want you to do now. Listen to me carefully. I want you to go into the village, find a wealthy merchant, and bet that merchant a thousand pieces of money that I can pull 100 carts filled to the brim with stones and rocks and boulders. You're crazy, said the farmer. You can't possibly do that. I know you're strong, but you can't do that. And Great Joy said, Had you ever heard an ox speak before today? The farmer said, No. And so, reluctantly and a little confused by the interaction, he went, walked on into the village, went to the tea shop, recognized a wealthy merchant, invited him for tea. He sat down, exchanged pleasantries. And then the farmer said, 
I have a very strong ox. And the, the merchant says, well, it's the nature of oxen to be strong. I have 20 such strong oxen. And the farmer said, but mine is super strong. Mine's stronger than any of yours. Everything has its limitations, said the merchant. Uh, how so, do you declare? And the, and the farmer said, well, my ox can pull a hundred carts filled with rocks around the village square. I don't think so, said the merchant. What kind of high tale are you telling me? Well, I'm willing to bet a thousand pieces of money, said the farmer, timidly, reluctantly. The merchant chuckled and says, okay, you're on. In the morning, when the sun hits the tallest branches of the mango tree in the village square, you have your so-called great joy strong ox there, and I'll have arranged for all the carts and a huge yoke to place on the shoulders of your great joy. And we shall see. So the farmer started off home. The, uh, the merchant began spreading the story about what was to happen. Uh, and the whole village became festive and bets were on and the rumors were spreading. A thousand pieces of money, a hundred carts, one ox. By the time the great farmer, the uh, poor farmer got home, he was really having doubts. His whole life had been just completely turned about in, in one day. And he was confused and he didn't know what to do. He threw some straw in the, in the trough for great joy and didn't eat much uh, and went to bed early. Had bad dreams. Dreamt of all the time in his, uh, in his youth that whenever he was uh, uh, betrayed or not believed or not loved, he felt quite disconnected in his dream life from himself. In fact, continued to feel that when he woke up in the morning and tried to recount whether this was true, that he was taking great joy into the village for this massive feat, or whether he had been dreaming it. But he wasn't within himself. And he wasn't feeling the usual kind of unconditional care and trusting uh, that he had had all these years for his beloved great joy. Walked out to the stable and, and looked at him and great joy was wagging his tail and eating that golden straw and he didn't seem to mind about anything. Confused and, and uh, afraid, the farmer put a rope around the neck of great joy and even grabbed the branch to use as a switch, not knowing what he would face in the village. And wordlessly they walked into the village. And there was the whole village. And they got over the rise, just as the sun was hitting the tallest mango tree. The poor farmer's heart dropped down at his feet. Oh no, he thought, what have I done? But he put on a, he put on a front of, uh, of uh, masquerading his fear, put on a front of strength, walked up, greeted the merchant, the merchant ordered the, the massive yoke put on the shoulders of great joy. Still beside himself and confused then, poor farmer walked up and said, okay, and put on a big front for, the, uh, for effect to the village. Okay, you beast, you wretch, show them what you can do. And hit him with a switch on his shoulders and on his hind. 
And then he did it again and then again. Great joy, who was unaffected, of course, by the switch, but his heart hurt by the attitude of his long-time caring friend. thought, wretch is it, beast? And using the switch, I'm not moving a millimeter. And he just ground his, his hoofs deep into the earth. And the village people just tried to egg him on and laughed. They began throwing you know, cabbage and rotten eggs and leftover tofu and lasagna, whatever was around. Great joy wouldn't move. Finally, the farmer conceded defeat, handed all the wealth he had after all these years over to the merchant, walked home, head down, feeling hurt, betrayed, destroyed. Great joy followed along. When he reached his little hut, he went in, put his head down on the table, and just wept. Great joy, after the events of the morning, was rather thirsty. He went over to the trough, took a few deep swigs of water, heard his, his, his master crying, understood he was going through a little traumatic experience. Walked back up to the mud hut, stuck his horned head through. My friend, whatever is the matter, he said really kindly. What's the matter, said the farmer. What do you mean, what's the matter? You, you, you've ruined me. Uh, I have, you've, uh, I've lost all my wealth and worse, I've been shamed in front of the whole village. I'll be the fool forever. Why have you done this? Why did you betray me? I believed in you and I was crazy for doing so. And, and on he went. Great joy just kind of stood there, began radiating this unconditional love, soothing the temper and the pain of his friend. And when the farmer was finished with his little process, Great joy says, actually, who was it that betrayed whom here? Was there ever a time in all the years I've been here when I couldn't perform whatever task was necessary? Didn't I move all the stumps, the great boulders? Did I ever break a water jug or foul the entry? Did I ever hurt a child playing on my back or hanging from my horns or even my tail? Was there anything I ever did to indicate that I would in any way not follow through on a promise? And he continued to radiate his great kindness and love farmer began to be overcome by these feelings and he sank back into his, his natural wisdom and began realized that yes, something was off and it had been off within him. And, and you're, you're right, said the great, said the poor farmer to great joy. Tears began to trickle down his face. There was nothing that you never did and you have given no reason why I shouldn't have trusted you. I'm really sorry I said those things and didn't believe you. I'm really sorry I hit you with the switch. As tough as your hide is. Well, never mind, said Great Joy. Now this is what I want you to do. Run back to the village. Find that very same merchant. Bet him 2,000 pieces. Now let's make it an even 5,000 pieces of money that I can do the same task that I promised to do this morning. He'll just think you're crazy, but that's okay. 
So the farmer did. He ran in. He found the merchant. Again, feeling within himself, connected to his beloved. He found the merchant and said, I'd like to make that bet again. My, my great joy was feeling a little off this morning. I think he might be able to do better tomorrow. And the merchant, thinking that he really had a sucker here, and perhaps he had buried treasure somewhere under his, uh, his house, said, okay, you're on. And the the farmer said, I'll be here when the glow of the sun hits the tallest mango tree in the village. And then he went home, this time in in a buoyant mood. And he ate well that night and had wonderful dreams, dreamt of all the times when he felt most deeply connected to life and all living things and beloved by all and not even having to be different than who he was. And he woke up ran out to the, uh, the stable. There was great joy. Cruising, having a mellow time. Nothing seemed to faze him. Gave him some golden straw. And just as the glow of, of dawn began to color the palms of their hand, uh, a pinkish lavender, they started into the village. And when the, the light hit the mango tree, there they appeared at the knoll over the village. Villagers were out again for yet another spectacle. But something... What was it? It was different today. There was this great joy, but somehow he seemed larger. Is it the same ox? His horns seemed to hook through the clouds themselves. And the farmer stood there in his full regalia, healthy, pride. Together they walked in. The great yoke was put on his back. This time the farmer came up with his flower lei he had ordered from Hawaii, put it around the neck, of great joy and said, okay, my great and beloved friend, show them your immense compassion and your great strength. Step back. Great joy winked at the farmer, took a step forward. The cart behind him lurched forward and then the other 99 carts followed, took another step and another. Soon he was walking, then he was uh, trotting and then cantering finally galloping around the village square faster and faster and faster till all the edges wore off the square. And from then on it was known as the village circle. (laughs) When they stopped, of course, the crowd was overjoyed and filled with the feeling of, of this marvelous feat more for the compassion than for the strength itself. Even the the, the merchant graciously conceded defeat and handed over the wealth to the poor farmer, no longer poor. And the two of them, farmer and great joy, uh, they walked on home uh, with this renewed sense of self-dignity and, and uh, unshakable love, unconditional love for each other. Great joy, of course, lives within each of us, as does the poor farmer. And, and all, the, all the characters in these stories, they, get, they awaken a part of our psyche, brings them to life. And the message, or one of the messages here, uh, for me, has always been the, uh, the strength of the teachings that deep understanding follows deep connection. That in the wake of feeling unconditional love, feeling seen, of feeling recognized, 
understanding, deep intuitive wisdom arises uh, quite naturally. Our practice in the Buddhist tradition called the Eightfold Path is the path of, of love and understanding. And if we reflect on our lives, the times when we felt we, we, we really could do anything, did not those times often arise from when we felt uh, most seen or most understood? My, uh, my initial years of practice in, in Burma, in the very beginning, I, I felt this, this timidity. I felt so in such an alien place with different food and customs, uh, unfamiliar uh, circumstances, the friends, the family, everything kind of absent. The link that kept me going was the link with my with my teacher and it wasn't it wasn't any because in this tradition there's not a, a a dependence on the teacher except for guidance except, except for being empowered to uh, discover wisdom for ourselves uh, they function teachers in this tradition function more as a spiritual friend the the courage the confidence i got was from feeling so seen and, and accepted from him, the unconditional acceptance that gave me everything I needed, the, the, the courage and the energy and the inspiration uh, to, to, to let go my fears and to be there and to practice. And time and again, it was that same transmission, one of feeling unconditional acceptance. That's metta practice you did this afternoon. Uh, and whether it be in the context of a retreat where we do the metta and the metta begins itself to, to draw out that core essence, sense of ourselves, place that's deeper than all fear and shame, place where we feel we can do anything. We have the strength of great joy uh, to walk this life, this path, and use it wisely for our awakening. In the, in the Buddhist tradition, it's taught that our innate nature is this brightly shining mind or heart. That whether, that whether the mind is obscured with, with defilement or confusion or obstructions or translucent and free of any of these obstructions. Its innate nature is this non-judging, caring awareness, this innately radiant mind. This is a very pure basis for spiritual growth and a positive view of human nature. It's not the sense that we have to go really and get rid of all our stuff. Rather, put ourselves in the, in the environment and condition in which this innate process, this innately shining mind comes forward on its own. In the same way, great joy embraced his beloved uh, farmer and master so that the farmer reconnected with his nature of love and understanding.
the Buddhist teachings also reveal to us that, that metta, unconditional love, is a part, intricate part of this radiant, pure mind. The very knowledge of that is inspiration to practice, as difficult as it can be at times, to practice so that this radiance can reappear. This is a a beautiful poem by Mary Oliver, inspired by the Buddha's life. It's called The Buddha's Last Instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two solid trees, and he might have said nothing, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward. It thickens and settles over fields. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, disattached, In the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills, like a million flowers on fire. Clearly, I'm not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha. The resting state of mind is this naturally pure, peaceful, brightly shining heart or mind. just needs attention. It just needs the, the opening, the approach of care, the message of great joy. Just one ounce of care, of connection, and you get a, you'll get a ton of energy from me, of strength, of faith. The term in the, in the Buddhist Pali, Tathagata, often used to describe the Buddha or his enlightened disciples. The, the, a literal translation of this term, Tathagata, is one who has become authentic. One who has become authentic. Touched by this quality of unconditional love, the, the, the metta, the power, great joy. We, our authentic being begins to emerge, overcoming our acquired personality, all the, the masks, all the defenses we've had to use to survive. So when we come into a retreat, we come into a sacred space. At the same time, collectively, we create it. 
the qualities Michelle was speaking about, of silence and uh, subscribing to the culture of, of non-harming, uh, developing the mind, concentration, and allowing wisdom to come forward. This is, this is the container that we collectively create, that external atmosphere of trust, of safety, of sacredness, is what allows the layers of mind to open. The metta percolates through and reveals, begins to open. So without any judgment, it is that every moment of that pure caring, free awareness, you just see what's there. The non-judging awareness doesn't need to push it away. It doesn't need to hold on either. It's the, very, it's the awareness itself that is the, the purifying power of the practice. The, the great acceptance of metta or as felt through, as I was describing with, with my teacher, Upandita, uh, feeling seen, feeling understood, feeling accepted, that I didn't have to be anything different than I was, was the key to opening to my depth, became the key to the transformative experiences that followed. The affirming nature of metta. M- Michelle mentioned today how it's a complementary practice. It is in several ways. One of them is um, by doing a metta practice, either on a daily basis or a few minutes prior to any um, mindfulness meditation. There's several ways you can, you can integrate it. You can do periods of walking or sitting in metta. And then the vipassana. The, the gift of the metta is in purifying the mindfulness. It's that aspect of mindfulness that is non-judging, that is acceptance. So if you connect with the practice, you can do very directly some of the metta practice in any way you see fit. And tomorrow we'll talk about how to do that in daily life. Not only in formal meditation, but more free flow style during the day. The mindfulness itself also is a catalyst for the metta. This mindfulness has the power to draw to it other associated skillful states. So it draws energy, it draws inspiration, it draws faith and confidence, it draws concentration, it draws elements of wisdom that continue to grow. Metta is one of them. Metta and compassion, joy, they too are drawn into a moment of, of mindfulness. Every moment of pure mindfulness, this metta quality is there. As the, the, the ability to, to soften experience so that the impulse to reject or grasp or judge falls away in the light of this metta. The more we practice the mindfulness, the stronger also the metta grows. Gradually the sense of, of merging metta, which is love with wisdom, conjoins or in in a confluence with the wisdom. 
Wisdom, when we speak of wisdom practice, it means intuitive understanding. It's a non-intellectual, immediate seeing of the nature of things. It's the definition of, of vipassana. Seeing the nature of things as they are. Our, our mindfulness draws together these powerful associated states, including the metta, and that brightly shining mind stream is what we touch or we begin to rest on for various moments. It starts to become a stronger habit within us. We begin to experience it as a resting place. That the only real break is this resting in this quality of awareness. Gradually, the wisdom of equanimity grows in strength. The kind of equanimity embodied by great joy. When he could just sit there with both praise and blame and be unaffected. Of course, the the praise is, is more pleasant, but it could also withstand the onslaught of ridicule and blame. Here, the wisdom of equanimity teaches us that life is a series of vicissitudes of pain and pleasure, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. So, one of the great gifts that we, of this practice that we take back out into the world is a greater balance of mind that can, like a surfer, ride the waves of change without needing always to be at the peak or avoiding the troughs. This is life as it is. Understood that, capa- that equanimous capacity to hold the extremes, to hold the joys and sorrows, allows us to turn any life experience, pleasant or unpleasant, into a deep learning increasing our awareness, increasing our wisdom, increasing our compassion. Equanimity becomes the container for the purest unconditional love, or metta. And it becomes the container for the purest mindfulness. In deep practice, purest mindfulness arises out of the mind of equanimity. Because it doesn't fluctuate in the face of what's attractive or what's uh, repulsive. True mindfulness with this equanimity, it doesn't need experience to be in any certain way. I've been describing it as a pre-verbal awareness. So it's before thoughts proliferate in the conceptual process, which then become vulnerable to our likes and dislikes, to our clingings and aversions. The equanimous mind it just opens to things as they are, sees things as they are, and acts wisely out of that seeing. Acts with compassion, with great strength when it needs to, or with silence, with standing still when it needs to do that as well. I call the mind of equanimity bamboo mind because it's its very yielding nature which gives it its great strength. Bamboo, even in the worst hurricanes in Hawaii, can bend all the way over when the winds in any direction 
as the winds change. But when it passes, it's the nature of the bamboo to come back to center. And its hollowness and its suppleness is its great strength. This is the nature of, of, of the mind of equanimity developed in this practice, composed of unconditional love and mindfulness. I'm going to uh, end with another antidote in, in a few minutes that, um, that also it's like great joy. Someone who embodies these qualities expressed in a different way. And this is a, a person who is uh, not a mythological uh, creature particularly, but a, a human being who, who was a teacher and who from I learned a great deal. I learned a lot about the nature of equanimity to, in its power of being passionately in the present moment and paying attention, that it can act very compassionately, deeply compassionately, and at the same time, utterly let go the need to control the results. This, in effect, is the definition of equanimity. It's able to hold whatever extremes whatever contradictions, whatever play of opposites appear before us, as you'll see in this story that I would tell, in paying attention to take whatever action is appropriate, most appropriate, motivated uh, from compassion and skillful means. It is the wisdom to do what's timely and appropriate. But secondly, it's the equanimity that, that lets go attachment to results the need to control the experience in any particular way. It has enormous and profound effect on everything that we do in our life, our work, our relationships. It allows us to be with things as they really are and to be with people as they really are. Imagine our relationships not predicated on our idea of the person, on our interpretation of the person, on our fixed image of who we want that person to be or who they were, but rather how they really are, with this quality of accepting how they really are. Great joy didn't judge his master, the farmer. He just loved him and pointed out his errors of perception. And that was the cause for great change. In the same way, as our relationships are more defined by this acceptance, this equanimity, this allowing of people to be who they really are, we, we see through the filters of our idea of the person and connect more intimately with who they really are. This also applies to ourselves. We let go of the image of how we wish we were or feel we should be and let who we really are come forward. When uh, I was living for some time in India in the mid-70s, I stayed for quite a period of time at a Japanese temple in Bodh Gaya, India, near the, the, the Bodhi tree under which the, the Buddha 
under which Prince Siddhartha became the Buddha, a relative of the Bodhi tree. And within a couple hundred yards, uh, in the mid-70s, was one of the, uh, the really nicer temples there, run by a rather dynamic, colorful uh, Zen abbot. name was Shibuya-san. He loved n- nothing more than practice and in sharing practice. His was a Zen style, but I, I sat and learned from him, even though I practiced uh, Vipassana while I was staying at his temple. I practiced in my room during the day. Shibuya-san also had the duties of looking after the, the, the temple. There was a, a school connected with it, a pilgrimage house for tourists coming from Japan, beautiful Zen gardens, the temple itself. Early in the morning, at six every morning, uh, Western practitioners would come out from other guest houses or other temples in Bodhgaya and participate in the meditation and a little reading, a little walking ceremony in the morning, just as the sun rose. Same thing in the evening, about six. The rest of the time, Shibuya-san was, was busy overseeing uh, all of his, everything under his charge there. He'd work till about 10 every night and then he'd sleep for four hours. Get up at two. That's when we would meet. This one particular time was now uh, March or April. It was the hot season in India. So we'd go to the... uh, We'd go inside the temple and inside the temple uh, there was this huge trap door. It looks like one of those big, heavy, wooden, medieval things that opened up and we could go down into a dungeon underneath the temple where it was very cool. And Shibuya-san, he, he did all his sitting in one shot. So it was a four-hour sit from two, I was younger then, from two to six. Just sit stone still like a statue. And it was an exciting thing for me. And uh, in those days, you know, I was uh, been really lucky to have... Uh, these marvelous teachers over my life. Uh, and, uh, and, and of course, there was just this, this wonderful idealization of my teachers because they inspired me so, so much. So I'd steal glances every so often just, just to watch him sit. And I'd see that he just didn't seem to move. I couldn't even see him breathing. I'd check, you know, and there's this candlelight down there in my eyes and stone still. Nothing ever seemed to budge him. One night, uh, a, a traveling Indian man uh, had, was invited by Shibuya-san to join us. And, and he did. He was there at two. Uh, he hadn't been practicing. And he was tired. And I think he was, uh, had quite a big meal earlier on. Because the whole night, he'd fall asleep and snore and then belch and pass gas. <laughs> so it was this cacophony of sounds and uh, effluence and smells all night. And, and I watched my hero, Shibuya-san, to see if he would take any radical action, you know. I expected him to come up with the Zen paddle and whack that person. But he didn't. It was stone still till 6 a.m. He just seemed to know when it was 6, open his eyes and go up and, and lead the morning meditation. Well, another time, he had a particularly trying day. He had been dealing with his uh, his uh, administrative uh, the administrative authorities 
in Japan, that he wasn't attending to the pilgrim tourists who were coming the way he should. He was spending too much time with these meditators. Uh, and so it was a hard day for Shibuya-san. It was the tiredest I'd seen him in months. And we came, like just the kind of rings, dark circles around his eyes. We opened the hatch, went down. It was just he and I again. And I, and I was sort of apprehensive. And I, this isn't the Shibuya-san I know. You know, what's going on? Start off stone still as usual. And I'd steal my glances every, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And imperceptibly, I saw him moving forward. I, I didn't see it. It was more like the, the hour hand of a clock. You know, so after a while, I, I'd keep my eyes open, but still I couldn't see. But every so often, it was, you know, yes, he's another 10 degrees <laughs> toward the ground, you know. 3 o'clock, 3.30, and 4.30. And he, he just kept going over and over and over. And about, just about two minutes to six, his, his forehead was just this far from the ground. And then, and there was never a sound the whole night, waiting for a snore or anything, you know, but nothing. Just then, he opened his eyes, stood back up, we went upstairs. The Westerners were there and one another Japanese monk visiting there in the morning, and what we do before the meditation was go to the corner of the building. And uh, Shibuya-san in front bow down toward uh, the Bodhi tree and the rising sun. And he did the same as usual. Shibuya-san, the other Japanese monk next to him, myself, and a dozen or so Westerners would come out for the morning sitting. Uh, you know, and I still kind of feel the tension in, in, in Shibuya-san the day before that he had been holding and a new group of tourists had come. Looked out in the morning and the sun is just coming up so that the full moon is there and it's setting. And hidden in the, in the extraordinarily kept Zen gardens, the swept sand made to look like waves and the rushes and the bamboo and the big rocks and the pond. There were about a dozen tourists out there poised with their cameras and I thought, uh-oh, he's not going to like this. Because and, and, I know what he'd been going to. Uh, so we all put our hands together, and this is the Anjali, putting the hands together that we do in respect or in, in, in reverence, and we're bowing toward the Bodhi tree. And about halfway down, it, it felt like an earthquake. This thunderous lion's roar cracked the morning sky. felt like the temple itself was shaking. The Bodhi tree a couple hundred yards ago was swaying. It was explosive. And I could see Shibuya-san. I could see just the vapors coming out of his mouth and eyes and like a dragon, although I couldn't see his face. But the tourists just scattered immediately in, in all directions cameras falling and, and film flying all over the place. It was like a huge boulder falling into a very small pond, splattering the drops in every direction. And then it was silent. All of us were kind of trembling and shaking. Shibuya-san, it was just a moment in time. He completed the bow, came back up, 
turned and bowed, as he often did, Ohio Gazimus, to each of us, to first the monk, and I was terrified to meet his gaze. But when he got to me, you know, <laughs> I'll never forget the look. It was so totally serene. And it was just the, the, the glint of the setting sun, or the rising sun and the setting moon in each eye, and this serene, deeply calm face looked at me with a glint and Ohel Gazimus and on down the line. He did what he had to do and totally let go without a trace. It's gone. Cooled out dude. (laughs) That's the effects of practice. The effect of having compassion, even fierce compassion when necessary. And the wisdom, the understanding, the equanimity, not to hang on, not to leave a trace there for the next moment. Things just as they are. This is why we practice. Let's sit together a moment. May we all learn more and more deeply how to make of ourselves the light. For the next sitting, I'll probably ring two bells, uh, one after about 10 or 15 minutes of sitting, and then another at uh, at 10 o'clock. Uh, so that was an advertisement. So you can come in feeling like you don't feel trapped in here. Uh, so I don't want people to feel like they can leave any time, but there'll be a, ra- a bell rung around 25 past 9, 9.30. So please feel free to come. I'll ring the bell. The first lot, whoever wants to leave, can leave, and then the rest of us can sit until 10. So it's time for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.